Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Lift Effect podcast. I am your host, Matt McNeil, founder, clinical director, and director of human performance at Lift Effect, where we assist professional pilots with maintaining better mental health and optimizing their mental skills. The goal of this podcast is simple to help pilots and other high liability professionals and disciplines come out of the shadows to discover how we can live better lives personally and professionally. Join us each episode as we discuss various topics ranging from mental health, mental skills and performance, to business, entrepreneurship, and a few other surprises along the way. Ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Lift Effect Podcast. It is me, Matt, flying solo once again. It's just kind of worked out that way. Um, funny enough, we had recorded, Carl and I had done an episode, uh, and we got to the end of it, and you know, we finished it, and and then a couple days later, I pulled it up, and the uh, my audio was not enabled on the recording. It, it was it had selected a different input source. So it sounded like I was like, you know, on the other side of the Grand Canyon and it basically was unusable. So we were like, Oh God, there's, there goes the whole episode. So, um, but rather than waiting to get another time for Carl and I to get together to do this, I, I had, um, something that I thought has been requested for a while now, and it doesn't really involve, um, Carl asking a lot of questions of me. And so I thought, hey, this could be a really good opportunity for me to to do what I've been wanting to do for a long time. So this is going to be a fire hose, uh, aviation fire hose. We're all familiar with that. But what this is going to be is a quick, comprehensive overview of mental health uh, it's like a mental health 101. What are some definitions? We'll talk about um, some of the uh, some statistics around the prevalence of mental health issues. I'm going to define uh, what mental health issues are, what those look like clinically. Just kind of a, a 101 crash course um, in mental health. And again, it's just people have asked over and over is, can you just define what anxiety is, what depression is, what substance abuse issues are. Can you just give us a brief overview, kind of the Cliff Notes version? And it's been, you know, a bit fragmented. These things have come up throughout the podcast, but we've never actually, um, I've never sat down and just said, okay, let's do a crash course 101. We'll spend the next uh, few minutes just going over this so you have an idea of what this is. Now, the, the purpose of this is not for you to become an expert um, in diagnosing mental health issues. So please don't listen to this and go, oh, you know, I think that's my that's my brother or that's my or that's or that's me, the 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 joke in medical school or any kind of healthcare school, whether you're in nursing school or psych psychology or therapy school or whatever is when you're studying these things, of course, there's this high prevalence of people thinking that they have every one of those conditions. It's kind of there's a there's a term for it. I can't remember what it's called, but that that can happen. And that's not what I want you to do here. This is not for you to diagnose yourself or to diagnose somebody else. But this is just to give you a, I guess like a, I don't know, just give you some language around mental health. So 
let's start with some definitions. So what is a mental health disorder? Well, the Mayo Clinic, um, if you pull up their website, you can, you can, and there's other websites too. They all kind of say the same, but I like theirs, uh, their, how they've got it laid out. And here's how they define a mental health disorder. So a mental health disorder refers to a wide range of mental health conditions, disorders that affect mood, thinking, and behavior. So here's the key concepts, and I'll try to highlight the, what do you need to take away? So mood, thinking, behavior is what this pertains to. So examples include things like depression or anxiety disorders or substance use disorders and schizophrenia and psychosis and those kinds of things. So, and here's what I'll say, here's the highlight, the thing I want you to remember, everybody has mental health concerns from time to time. That's totally normal. That doesn't mean that you have a disorder or that there's something wrong with you. Mental health concerns become illness when ongoing signs and symptoms cause stress and negatively impact ability to function. So that's the key piece here is it becomes disordered when your ability to just function becomes uh, negatively impacted. Me- really what that means, you, you really can't function. And that doesn't mean like, okay, one day you get so activated by something that you just you just can't seem to get out of bed. That that doesn't mean you have a disorder, but it means when it's it's gone on for a while. What are the thresholds? The the DSM five. That's how mental health disorders are classified. But usually, what they say in there is two weeks or more. I think that that's a little bit stringent. I think it can go on a little bit longer. But really, it's where this has gone on, not for just a couple days, but it's gone on for weeks. Uh, to months. That's when we would classify that as a disorder. So I'm going to highlight a few things that I think are are a big part of the the picture of what mental health and where things become disordered. And so let's talk about stress. Stress is a response that you have when facing circumstances that force you to act, change, or adjust in some way to keep things balanced. That's what stress is. And so stressors are the circumstances we face and fall into certain categories. So what are those categories? So stressors could be social uh, or family. We all can relate to that. Occupational stressors. There can be educational stressors. There can be health stressors, financial environmental stressors. These are the, 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 the big categories where people experience stressors that can then create the stress response. Now, chronic stress is the state of ongoing psychological arousal. This, this occurs when the body experiences so many stressors that the autonomic nervous system, and think of autonomic as really like automatic. It's things like uh, blood pressure, um, heart rate, heart rate variability, uh, how much cortisol you might have in your system. These are things that are largely out of your control, right? You can't just like make your blood pressure go up or make your heart start pounding. If you're just sitting there you can try to think about something scary or whatever, but these are uh, autonomic. I just kind of think of automatic. And so chronic stress is when these stressors affect the autonomic nervous system 
and when the nervous system just doesn't have a chance to um, activate a relaxation response. That's what chronic stress is. You just never have the opportunity to come down. Anxiety and depression, the most common mental health issues that we're all sort of familiar with, anxiety and depression, um, they they often are are like you know they're they're different. They present differently, but they're very uh, co-located. They're they're tied together. We slip into anxiety and we slip into depression all the time. We have little bits of both, and so they frequently they frequently co-occur. I always think of anxiety as a future focusing orientation. What is something I'm thinking about that that I'm worrying about that's going to happen in the future? And often I find that with depression, it's more of a rear view mirror kind of a look back, a past focused orientation. Now that's not something you're going to find in the the DSM. They've just got clusters of symptoms, which I don't think is very important to go over here. But I think it's... To me, just in terms of the layman's uh, understanding or application, anxiety is forward-looking, depression is kind of a rearward-looking orientation to where that orientation becomes so distracted that you don't ever really get into the present moment. You're just kind of stuck in the future or you're stuck in the past. Now, long-term effects of stress include there's mental health issues, sexual dysfunction, you have diabetes, and in fact, even tooth and gum disease are long-term effects of stress. You can have hair loss, ulcers, heart disease, uh, cancer, hyperthyroidism, obesity, um, obsessive compulsive or anxiety disorder. I mean, stress affects everything. It affects everything. That's the, the key thing to remember. Stress affects every single system that we have in our body. Prevalence of mental health disorders, and we'll just talk about adults, US adults, any one year. And these are, you know, a few years old statistics. I can tell you they're probably higher. They haven't really figured out um, what the epidemiological statistics are of the last couple of years because it takes a long time to be able to tabulate those. But so these are these are a few years old, but one in five U.S. adults will experience a mental illness each year. One in five. One in 20 U.S. adults experience a very serious illness each year. And I, I think how they would define that and how I would define that is a serious illness is one that's going to require intervention, some kind of intensive in- intervention, whether it's a uh, hospital intervention or it could be pharmacological intervention but something serious. One in six youth, uh, U.S. youth age six to 17 experience a mental illness each year. And suicide is the second leading cause of death among people age 10 to 34. The first, people often ask what the first, I'm sure you can guess, motor vehicle. So the prevalence of suicidal thoughts, and, and suicidal thoughts are what we call ideation, so the thinking about suicide, and that doesn't mean, hey, I wonder what it would be like to die or to kill yourself, but it means like th- seriously thinking about, I don't want to be here. How can I do this? How could I get this done? That's what ideation is. So among U.S. adults, and now this is from 2017, so it's quite quite old, leading age in terms of prevalence, um, 
was age 18 to 25. So that's the past year. That's the, the number one leading age, 18 to 25. That was 10.5%. Females, 4.6 versus males, 4.1, a little bit higher. Prevalence of mental disorders, just in general, U.S. adults, any one year. Well, at the top, so remember, it's tw- about 20% have a mental health issue, one out of five. So of the types of disorders, anxiety is at the top. So that would be 20% of all mental health disorders, anxiety is is the highest. Depression rings in at about 7.2%, and substance use is just a little above that, about 8%. So anxiety is at the top, then there's substance abuse, substance use disorders, major depressive disorder, pretty much the same. And then you get in things like bipolar, uh, 2.8%, eating disorders, schizophrenia is, is less than a percent, about about half a percent, 0.45%. But again, 19.6% of U.S. adults have a, uh, a mental health so what would be classified as a mental health disorder. And this, these are statistics that are gleaned from the National Alliance on Mental Health or on, on Mental Illness, uh, NAMI. Here's a statistic. In the U.S., less than 50% of people with a mental disorder will actually reach out for help. And of those that do, the median time frame, and again, if you think about averages, there's median... Um, mean and mode. We'll just do the median right in the middle. Median time frame for reaching out for help is is 10 years. The comorbidity, and comorbidity means you can have multiple things going on, is 45%. So people of those that have mental health disorders, 45% have multiple, would qualify for multiple diagnoses. So examples of comorbidity would be like depression and anxiety or compulsive sexual behaviors and substance use disorders, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, PTSD, that's called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD and substance use disorders, eating disorders and major depressive disorders, gambling addiction and substance use disorders, so on and so forth. So those are examples of what comorbidity are. The And here's probably something we'll go into there's been a lot of questions about generate generational differences especially at the airlines in terms of resiliency and prevalence of mental health disorders and so on so on and so forth that's a whole nother episode but here's a quick stat this was a study that uh, blue cross blue shield did in uh, 2019 it was published in november of 2019 and the study was called the economic consequences of millennial health and I'll just give you a couple highlights from this. Here's what it said. It said, millennials are seeing their health decline faster than the previous generation uh, as they age. This extends to both physical health conditions, such as hypertension and high cholesterol, and behavioral health conditions, such as major depression and hyperactivity. Without intervention, millennials could feasibly see mortality rates climb up by more than 40% compared to Gen Xers at the same age. That is, if you think about that, mortality is going to climb by more than 40% compared to Gen Xers at the, at that, at, when they're at the same age. And what this, this is get, where it gets really disturbing. What this means is millennials 
will die 10 years younger than Gen Xers. That is, I mean, think about that. I would say that that would be of a pandemic proportion. And I think for Gen Z, it's worse. It's worse than millennials. We have a very serious problem. Okay, so let's get back. Let's let's go into aviation for a minute. So the most common issues among pilots, and there's been some studies on this, and certainly anecdotally of treating thousands of pilots at lift effect, the most common issues among pilots are anxiety and depression and substance, substance use. Now, we don't see a whole lot of substance use at lift effect. And I think part of that, uh, as we're talking about among pilots, is because there's the HIMSS program. And we've touched on that before. HIMSS is a very well-structured program um, for good or for bad. It, it, it is very regimented. And that tends to capture pilots with those issues that where it disrupts their life. Again, the ability to function negatively impacts the ability to function. They, it kind of get caught. They know, you know, you can't hide forever. And once a pilot either gets, gets uh, pinged or raises the white flag, they're in that HIMS process. And that's a very uh, structured out pathway for them to manage their their issue, manage their disorder, and be able to get back to, to flying. So they don't we don't typically see a whole lot of that. We do see some of it, but not at the rates that we see anxiety and depression. And so, I mean, and that just makes sense. If you think about anxiety and depression, they're the most common types of mental health issues, and they can have similar signs and, and symptoms, and they frequently co-occur. So that's what we see among pilots at lift effect. So Let's get into anxiety for a bit. Signs and symptoms of anxiety. Well, the first thing are physical. If we're thinking about what are the most prominent physical symptoms that people experience, well, there's cardiovascular symptoms. That's pounding heart, chest pain, rapid heartbeat, um, blushing. So they, they, you know, a common thing that happens with pilots is they think they're having a heart attack. And then they'll report to the emergency room going, oh my God, I'm dying. And they do the whole cardiac workup and they're like, you're fine. You're, you're healthy as a horse. Um, you're not having a heart attack. Well, what is it? It's oftentimes it's anxiety. Another one is res- uh, respiratory issues. So fast breathing, shortness of breath. There can be neurological symptoms like dizziness or tingling in the fingers, headache, sweating, Sometimes numbness comes in there. Gastrointestinal issues, your gut. Um, that, and that can include even choking. And that goes all the way from the throat, all the way down into your abdomen, into your, into your, your, G, your whole GI system, which includes your throat. Dry mouth, stomach pains, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. There can be musculoskeletal issues like muscle aches and pains. And this is especially prevalent with anxiety is in the neck in the shoulders, in the back. There can be uh, restlessness, sometimes tremors and shaking, and just a general inability to relax. Those are some signs of anxiety uh, in terms of physical signs. Then there's behavioral signs, which are avoidance of situations, right? Don't want to fly in turbulence, don't want to fly at night, don't, I mean, I've we've seen it all. And pilots say, I don't like flying over large bodies of water. Um, don't like flying in certain types of airplanes, you, you name it, but it's these avoidance behaviors. 
obsessive or compulsive behaviors. So examples of that would be, um, what do I see most often? It's, you know, I don't, we see, okay, training. Here's an example of the training environment. I cannot fly uh, or be in a training situation that starts at 6 a.m. Or I can't be in sim number four. Or, and, or I've got to have my flight bag a certain way. I've got to have my shoes a certain way. And these are just attempts to, to regain control when we feel like we have a, an out-of-control feeling. And then there's psychological symptoms of anxiety. And this is unrealistic or excessive fear and worry about past and, and predominantly future events. Mind can feel like it's racing or it can even feel like it's just going blank decreased concentration and memory, indecisiveness, irritability, impatience, confusion, anger, restlessness, or feeling like you're just on edge, or nervous. Sometimes fatigue is a sign of anxiety. And of course, as we've, we've touched on before, sleep issues, sleep disturbance, difficulty falling asleep, feeling like you're starting to get ramped up when it's time to go to bed because you're worried about sleep or you can't stay asleep. Those are symptoms, psychological symptoms of anxiety, which brings us to kind of the big kahuna of anxiety, which is a panic attack, panic attack. Now, anybody that's had a panic attack will tell you that it is the worst feeling in the world. You, you are convinced that you are dying, that you're done. And the way I like to educate clients about panic attack is to think of it as a it's a false alarm if you think about your smoke detector up in the up in your ceiling i'm sure if you're if you're sitting in your office or sitting in your bedroom or your living just look around and identify where a smoke detector is now that thing its job is to get your attention it's going to be really loud and really annoying and it's going to blink and sometimes they may have flashing lights some of them have even voices that talk and it's there to grab your attention. And that is, if you've got a, if your living room is on fire, it's going to go off because it's going to go, time to get out, right? Let's jump out the windows or go get the fire extinguisher. But that same alarm will do that same disruptive song and dance if you're burning toast in the toaster. So it doesn't differentiate or know the difference between what is a three alarm fire and what is toast burning in the toaster. And that's what a panic attack is. It's a false alarm. Now, the symptoms of a panic attack most often are palpitations, pounding heart, sometimes even chest pain. That's the, I've got to go to the emergency room because I think I'm having a heart attack. It can be dizziness, lightheadedness, feeling faint, often sweating, cold sweats, numbness or tingling, chills, sometimes hot flashes, trembling and shaking, um, a, a sensation of choking or feeling like you're being smothered, shortness of breath, you can have abdominal distress or nausea, feelings of being detached from oneself, fear of losing control. Oftentimes people say, I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to go crazy. And the, the, most, the biggest fear is I, I'm, I, the fear that I'm dying. That's very common with panic attacks. So one of the things you can do to help with panic 
is let the person know you are concerned and that you're willing to help. Ask them whether they know what is happening or what has happened. And if you if you don't know if it's panic, I wouldn't just assume it's panic, ask if there's another medical condition. Um, you can check for medical alert bracelets um, and follow the instructions on the bracelet, obviously, right? But if the if the person believes it's a panic attack, then just reassure the person that it's a panic attack and ask the person if there's anything you can do to help. It's most important is to for you to remain calm and speak in a very reassuring but firm manner. Speak clearly, speak slowly, use short sentences, and most importantly, just be patient. Avoid any kind of negative reactions. That can just trigger them to get even more amped up. And acknowledge that the terror feels really real. It feels very real. Remind them that while a panic attack is completely frightening, it's really scary, it is not life-threatening. And you can reassure them that they're safe and that the symptoms will pass. If you do nothing, it will eventually pass, just like that smoke alarm. I mean, if it's burning toast, you open the windows and you just wait. You don't have to go and knock the batteries out because you'll be afraid, to, you'll forget to put them back in, which is a very bad idea. But if you just do nothing, it's going to pass. Symptoms of, let's get into depression. So that's panic, which is like an anxiety type disorder. Signs and symptoms of depression. And I'll tell you this too. I think, I can't remember what the statistics are, but it's like, they say one in three people will have a panic attack at some point in their life. I actually think it's higher. I think it's much higher. All right, let's move on to depression. So signs and symptoms of depression. Well, there's physical signs, just like anxiety, there's behavioral and there's psychological. Some of the physical signs are fatigue, lack of energy. It can be oversleeping. Sometimes it's undersleeping. It can be overeating or undereating. Constipation, weight loss, headaches. For women, it's a irregular menstrual cycle unexplained aches and pains, loss of uh, sexual desire. Those are some of the physical symptoms. Behavioral, oftentimes it's crying spells, just very, very tearful. And not, look, crying is healthy. That's a very adaptive thing to do, but it means when it's just, it becomes pervasive or just tearfulness without really any sort of context as to why it's happening. Withdraw from, uh, withdrawing from others, Forget just neglecting your responsibilities, loss of interest in how you appear, or just loss of interest in things that you at once you know found pretty pleasurable. You no longer just not interested anymore. Loss of motivation, and then even an extreme case can be like physically slow movement and behaviorally use of drugs and alcohol. That is the the self medicating thing that that happens when. When people have mental health issues, they will often turn to self-medicating measures to try to make themselves feel better. And then psychologically, symptoms of depression would be sadness, sometimes anxiety, again, that comorbidity with it, guilt, anger, mood swings, a lack of emotional responsiveness, feelings of helplessness, feeling hopeless, being really irritable, an increase in irritability, or just being the grumpy bear. Oftentimes, frequent self-criticism, which can include self-blame or pessimism, 
or your memory and your concentration starts to, to become impaired. You can't seem to remember things or you just can't focus. You can't concentrate. Being really indecisive or even confused. A tendency to believe that others see you in a negative light. And then often thoughts of death or suicide accompany the psychological symptoms of depression. So substance use disorders, obviously with pilots, the number one is alcohol, and that's because we get drug tested for everything else. Alcohol is accepted, whereas, you know, a cocaine habit or a meth habit is not. Under so let's 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 look at substance use disorders, just get a couple stats in here. So eight percent of US adults have a substance use disorder in any given year. And the use of alcohol or drugs does, does not mean, I'll, I'll add this, it, it doesn't mean a person has a substance use disorder. If you use alcohol or drugs, it doesn't mean you have a disorder. But 75% of people who develop a substance use disorder, they do so by the age of 27. That's the stat. So it's not something that typically, you know, I guess, you know, three out of four, it's before age 27. Uh, it can develop later in life, but it's not super common. Alcohol use disorders are three times as common as drug use disorders. And again, why is that? I think it's because alcohol is, is accepted, at least in our culture. It's even celebrated, whereas drugs, uh, drug use is not. In terms of co-occurrence, substance use disorders can co-occur with almost any mental illness. Some people self-medicate with alcohol, and people with anxiety or depression are two to three times more likely to have a substance use disorder than, than somebody without anxiety or depression. Again, I think it's because they're, we're, they're just trying to find a way to feel better. And so alcohol becomes a very temporary uh, relief for them. So what are some warning signs of substance use? Well, increase use over time. If you know your baseline is you know this cer certain number of drinks and then start you know you slowly starts to creep up or over time just doing more and more and more that's that's a warning sign increase tolerance for the substance another warning your body starts to adapt and in be able to you know it takes a lot more for that person to become intoxicated that's uh that's what tolerance is difficulty controlling use at more extreme cases symptoms of withdrawal that can often be stomach aches, it can be irritability, it can be tremors, shakes. Preoccupation with the substance. You know, we see that a lot with pilots is, you know, I, I gotta get on the ground, I gotta, I gotta get to the bar, we've only got, you know, 10 hours, we're at 11 hours, I gotta, you know, we just gotta get there. That, that's, that's an issue, um, which then goes along with giving up important activities like either work or social or family so that, that one can drink. That's a, that's a pretty big warning sign for uh, substance use disorder. So risk factors for substance use disorders, well, availability and tolerance of the substances in just in society, that's a risk factor. Social factors, genetic predisposition, they definitely know that that's a huge factor. If you ever go to a HIMSS conference, they'll, they'll break all of that down. They'll look at all of the uh, genetic data on substance use disorders and predispositions. Sensitivity to the substance, learning is, a, is a, a risk factor. And then obviously other mental health problems is a, is a big risk factor for those, for substance use disorders. Okay, so what do you do? How do you help if you feel like there's an issue? 
Well, one is just listen without judging the person as bad or immoral. That does not help somebody that is struggling or maybe struggling with a substance use disorder. Judging them is just going to make them shut down. So try to avoid expressing moral judgments about their drinking. Show that you are concerned for their well-being. Try not to be critical. Try not to label the person of being an addict or a drunk or an alcoholic. That doesn't go over well. Try not to uh, express your frustration at the person for having these problems. That doesn't help either. So changing drinking and drug habits is not easy. It's very difficult. Willpower and self-resolve are not always enough to stop the problem. Giving that person advice may not help the person change their habits. And not everybody wants complete abstinence as a goal. Reducing the quantity of how much they use, that might be a worthwhile step. Maybe that's enough to get this under control. Maybe it's a step toward sobriety. And a person may stop or try to stop using oftentimes more than once before they're successful. 90% of people fail the first attempt to stop using. And on average, it takes seven attempts, seven attempts at stopping to uh, be successful. And let's see, let's close this off uh, with suicide, the, the, big, the big one, right? So what do we know? Suicide was the 12th leading cause of death overall in the United States. And it claimed more than 45,900 uh, people. And the, again, these are about six years old, these statistics. Suicide was the second leading cause of death among, among individuals between the ages of 10 to 14. Yes, 10-year-olds, even younger, and the age 25 to 34. And it's the third leading cause of death among people age 15 to 24. And fourth leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 35 and 44. In 2020, there were nearly two times as many suicides in the United States as there were homicides. So there were 45,979 suicides in the U.S. in, 20, in 2020, and there was 24,576 deaths in 2020 from, from homicide. So suicide is double what homicide is, about, about double. Suicide has consistently gone up since 2000, um, and it's, it's slowly, but it's trending up. It's getting higher and higher. Males are much more likely uh, to commit suicide than females, and they think that's just because of the choice of method, the lethality of the, the method, which for men, it's, it's uh, guns, and for women, it's uh, medication. And so the risk factors are what, what increases a person's risk of suicide. Well, past attempts, that increases a person's risk. Having a mental health condition like anxiety or depression or substance use issue. Expressing feelings of hopelessness. Just saying, you know, there's, there's just no hope. There's no, this is never going to feel any better. That increases risk. Having money or legal problems increases risk. I mean, this is why with furloughs, they, you know, people think furloughs, the suicides always go up. I think it's just because pilots can't get to fly. Well, that may be part of it, but it's also because they're financially so leveraged that they can't afford to not have money coming in. Having violent or impulsive behavior increases a risk of suicide. That just kind of makes sense. That's common sense. 
impulsivity. And then when you add alcohol, that is a big risk of suicide. Impulsive behavior, these other issues increases the risk of suicide. And then obviously easy access to self-harm methods like having firearms or medication. You know, they always say the profession leads to the means. So yes, even airplanes, small airplanes uh, becomes a risk for pilots. Relationship factors, having a history of physical or emotional or sexual abuse or neglect uh, or bullying, you know, that is a, a risk factor for suicide. Losing a relationship through breakup or divorce or death is can be an increased uh, risk for suicide. A family history of death by suicide, that's, it's kind of a crazy statistic and it's, it's interesting, but it is a, a significant risk. If there's suicide in your family, that makes the means a lot easier to do uh, and so that's a risk factor. Being socially isolated, lacking support is a risk for suicide. Now there's community, cultural, and societal factors. So um, if you're ashamed to ask for help, so if you think about pilots, right? We're, I think we're at high risk because there's so much shame about asking for help. Lacking access to healthcare services, especially mental health and substance use treatment. And cultural or religious beliefs that suicide is a noble option to resolve a, a, a personal issue increases the risk. So some of the warning signs, being sad or moody, a sudden calmness. Sometimes people that with high suicidality, they, when they, once they decide they're going to they're kill themselves, they feel much better. Withdrawing from others. Changes in personality changes in your appearance, changes in the sleep pattern, showing dangerous or, or self-harm behavior. They, oftentimes they call that parasuicide. Like, I'm just going to go ride the motorcycle 180 miles an hour in the rain. You know, maybe I'll survive, maybe I won't. Showing dangerous, or, which is the same as, you know, uh, just showing self-harm behavior, dangerous behavior. Experiencing recent trauma or life crisis. Being in a state of, of deep despair making preparations, that's a huge warning sign. It's when somebody starts really preparing and, and, and crafting it out and designing exactly how they're going to do it, that's, that's a big warning sign. Or uh, threatening suicide or talking about wanting to die. And I don't mean like, oh, I'm just so upset I want to die. But like, no, really saying, you know, I think I don't want to be here anymore. That's a big warning sign. So most importantly, what do you do? And this is where, where the community is more important than the mental health professional in terms of suicide prevention. That's where it's identified by coworkers or by family members or by neighbors. That's how suicide gets mitigated. Once it gets to the mental health professional, it's much easier. We can take it from there, but seeing the signs and symptoms and, and being able to intervene early that comes from the community, that comes from family, that comes from friends or colleagues. So one, what do you do if somebody is talking about suicide? Well, first of all, take them seriously. Don't, even if it's mentioned kind of a grade, graveyard humor-esque way, you take, you take that seriously. Remove any objects that can be used in a suicide attempt, including airplanes. <laughs> take it the keys to the hangar. If there's guns, if there's meds, just say, let me just let me store those for you until you work through this. Encourage them to call 
the suicide prevention hotline or call, you know, go to the emergency room, even call together. So support services like the National Suicide uh, Prevention Lifeline, that's 1-800-273-TALK. You should just memorize that, 273-TALK. If this person appears to be really distressed, don't leave them alone. Try to keep them calm and get immediate help. Call 911 or just take them to the nearest uh, emergency room if somebody is, is in that sort of state of crisis. Uh, that's, that's, how you, that's how you handle it. Now, if you're a professional pilot and you, know, you want to refer the pilot to a professional, this is not just for suicide, but for any kind of mental health issue, speak directly to the individual about your concerns, but do it in private. Don't do this in front of other people. People in distress are almost always receptive to an expression of, of interest and care and concern. It really just depends on how you do it, whether they're receptive or not. If it's just you and it's private, people are, are often, sometimes they're pretty touched by that in a positive way. They're like, wow, somebody actually cares. Be specific about the behaviors that you observed and that, you, that you've got a, a reason for your concern. So stating your observations makes it more difficult for the individual to deny that a problem exists and also lets them know that you, you actually care enough to notice the change, to notice the behavior in them. The decision for them to accept the referral, it, it just, it's going to rest with that person. So, you know, you can encourage, but it's best not to push. That can often drive people away. Just open the door and, and hopefully they'll go through it. But be encouraging, but not pushy. Make sure that pilot know, the pilot knows that when they speak to a mental health professional, it's confidential. That's actually the law. There, of course, there's a duty to warn. That means if you're suicidal or homicidal, the, the mental health professional cannot help you, uh, you know, they can't help you kill yourself or hurt somebody else. They're going to have to make sure that you get a higher level of care. But HIPAA laws are every mental health professional or medical professional is bound by law to safeguard your the confidentiality of what what is happening for you. And one other thing I'll say, I'll just add this is sometimes coaching is a great place to start. It opens the door to maybe some deeper work where psychotherapy may be, may be helpful. Coaching is a place to start. It's like, okay, let's just work on some self-improvement without maybe getting into some deep intrapsychic phenomenon. And that opens the door and it might, you know, allow them to feel a little bit more comfortable. And then that can lead often into, into, um, into some, you know, more mental health kind of, kind of work. So, one of the things uh, I, I failed to mention, I just want to I want to mention too. Uh, we've I've talked about it in the past, but when you're thinking about what is normal, what is abnormal, what's most important is is to think. You know, we all have things like sadness or fear or worry or stress. You'd be something would be wrong with you if you didn't have those things. We can even have times we are just not doing well. That's that doesn't mean that you're sick. But where normal kind of concerns becomes illness, what we're looking for is this, this decline in function, this decline where it goes from sadness maybe to depression or normal kind of fear reactions can then become anxiety 
worry, can become anxiety, uh, where there's things like stress can then become addiction or su suicide at its worst. That's that, that slide from kind of normal adaptive responses to, to life's challenges into illness. And those things, those declines are marked by behaviors. And so behaviors you can see with predictability. So increased irritability, confused thinking, really big mood changes, a more conflict, sometimes it's workplace conflicts, really disruptive sleep issues that go on and on and on, and this loss of resiliency. Those are the behaviors that indicate when something has gone from normal to abnormal. That's the, that's the progression. So hopefully that was kind of a quick crash course, but I think maybe that was useful. People have been asking for it. Um, and maybe that's useful. If you have any questions, send them in and we can go deeper into some of these issues, exploring what these look like. We didn't talk about ADHD, and uh, which we're going to have a whole episode on that. But that's just your, your, your 101 mental health. Again, the warning, this is not for you to diagnose yourself. And it's certainly not for you to diagnose somebody else. Uh, you don't, don't do that. Don't, don't play that game. This was just to give you, you know, the, the cliff notes on, okay, mental health 101. So with that said, don't forget to send in your questions, podcast at lifteffect.com. And uh, I think for now, that will be it. I hope you guys have a good week and we'll talk to you soon. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Lift Effect Podcast. If you want to dive deeper into this episode and every episode, go to our website, lifteffect.com forward slash podcast. If you're enjoying the show, we would love it if you'd follow us on Spotify and rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate your support. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, all with the ID Matthew McNeil. This show is brought to you by Lift Effect, a clinical mental health and consulting company that assists air carriers, corporate flight departments, pilot unions, and commercial pilots by providing comprehensive psychotherapy and mental skills coaching services to pilots with mental health and mental performance related issues. Visit lifteffect.com, that's L-I-F-T-A-F-F-E-C-T.com to book your free consultation. And finally, this podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of counseling, psychotherapy, medicine, or any other healthcare service, including the giving of medical advice. No therapeutic or provider-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and any materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional psychological advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining advice for any psychological or medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Lift Effect podcast.